Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Barbara, you're back. Back on the Untoxicated Podcast. So glad to have you. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. I wish Sherry could be here with us. I know you and Sherry are quite fond of each other, and I know you feel the same. Sadly, um, we had one of those parental duty things that conflicted, and one of us had to go be the parent while the other one um, gets to talk to you. And given what the parent duty is, uh, without being specific, I am the lucky one to be here talking to you. So thanks for being with us. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. I'm looking forward to catching up. Do you know, I looked it up, it has been almost three years since you were on episode 70 of the Intoxicated podcast in January of 21. I cannot believe how long this has been. Where did that time go? I know. You know, almost nothing has happened to me in that period of time. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we're able to chuckle about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because our, as usual, our topic is fairly serious, but I'm glad we've um, both got that kind of attitude going in. I have to ask you, did did you by any chance listen to that episode in preparation for this conversation? You know, I didn't. That's a great idea. I don't relish listening to myself doing these things. It's a little bit painful. Uh, so no, I didn't. <laughs> That's so funny. No, I feel like I feel like I am on with Sherry because she won't listen to like any time we do this, like she will listen to this one because she's not on it. But anytime her voice is on it in any way, shape or form, she will not listen to it. She's gone. So, yeah. (laughs) So uh, I can relate to that. But I did. I listened to it in preparation for this um, because I knew, you know, I know your full story. Right. And I couldn't remember exactly which parts of it we had told and where it had left off. And we definitely want to pick up and tell the rest of the story. But before we do, we should mention that um, you have previously referred to your, your husband as John in both your writing. You prolifically wrote uh, on our Sober and Unashamed blog for a period of about a year and a half or so, something like that, which we so much appreciate. Um, and, but but your husband's real name is Todd, and we're going to explain why we're now owning that here in a little bit. But um, I just don't want our listeners to be confused. If they say, hey, Matt went back and listened to that episode 70, I want to listen to it too, which I do recommend. Um, it's it's a really great episode. But if, um, if there's confusion, your husband's real name is Todd, and that's how we're going to refer, refer, refer to him today. Sounds great. Thank you. Okay. Great. Um, I do also, while I'm on the topic of your writing, Barbara, you are the best writer I know. I was taking notes and I wrote that down and I was like, no, this is true. Now, there are there are people who are arguably in your class as far as writing skill and style and just um, your talent, but I don't know those people. And so you are 
the by far the best writer I know. And I'm, so thank, I'm, thank, I'm, thank, thank, thank you for all of your contributions to our work over the years. Thank you for, for giving me the opportunity because I'm one of those people that's always been kind of a closet writer. I, I mean, most of my writing, though, has occurred on the backs of envelopes and in, in journals that are abandoned after 10 pages. I, I, can't, I can't tell you the drawer full of journals that has, you know, 10 pages of, oh, I'm going to do this and then I don't do it. So, so Echoes really gave me a great opportunity to really delve into that part of my personality. And um, that's actually had a, a pretty happy conclusion. I'm working with a writing coach right now on a memoir uh, and having a really good, really terrible, really hard time, really. But I, I, I love it. It's I feel like it's a, a real true part of my personality. And it's 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 really down to you uh, that I've rediscovered that. So so thanks, Matt. Well, my, my pleasure. I mean, uh, maybe a nudge here or there, but that's it. You you had it in you. And um, I know your writing coach. And one of the things I love about her is she inspires people by saying, if you've got something that you can't not get out of you, if you've got a story that you can't not tell. Um, I love the double negative in the way she presents that. And I know that you yeah. do. And we're going to talk about some of that story today. Um, so when I was listening to episode 70, which again, I recommend people go back and take a listen. Um, you, we used some, some heavy, you used some heavy medical terms in that episode in referring to Todd, you talked about, um, his cirrhosis, his end stage liver disease, mm -hmm. um, his hepatic encephalopathy, yep. esophageal. And I, I, I was listening while I was running and I didn't write it down. I call it esophageal vein rupture, but there's actually venous it's, rupture or something. It, right? It's esophageal varices which varices. which is basically where yeah the the liver stiffens in in cirrhosis so that blood doesn't actually run through it normally and blood then ends up shunted around to other major vascular uh vasculature around that and the veins become uh narrowed uh not narrowed but um uh thin thinned yeah and then they're prone to rupture particularly in the gastrointestinal tract so and bleeds so, are quite common, yeah. And and bleeds is a tame way to say that because the way you described it on the original podcast episode was that it was like the scene from The Shining when the elevator doors open and there was blood everywhere. And it's, so it's genuinely terrifying. Uh, 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 esophageal varices when they rupture usually happens when there's there's some uh, something is disagreeing in the stomach and then there's a, a vomiting episode. And instead of it just being stomach contents, it's, it's also vein contents and there's really quite nothing, nothing like it. Uh, yeah. But when you, when you see it uh, as, as it happens and then the after effects are, are pretty, pretty grim. They're pretty frightening. Well, it's such a, um, just such a striking visual to talk about it that way. And I just wanted to save our listeners from rushing off to the Google machine to look up, what some of these big terms are. Um, another way people can relate to the hepatic encephalopathy, not relate to it, but better understand it that you described on the original podcast is that um, when you have that, your liver is not properly uh, serving its purpose as a filter and mm -hmm. ammonia is getting to the brain and it's causing right. brain damage. Exactly. Right? Correct. Yep. That's exactly the mechanism. Yep. Okay. And it so the, so, go ahead. No, please. Uh, it, the, so the brain damage, and this, it seems likely that hepatic encephalopathy is is one of those parts of alcoholic uh, liver disease that is difficult to um, 
work into a, a, a patient write-up, for example, like a, for a, a transplant. Uh, it's not it's not one of the metrics that's used for whether you need a transplant, but it is it's something that is a huge reduction of your quality of life. It completely alters your personality. It completely alters your ability to function, depending on which stage of it you're at. Um, so it's a it's this huge destructive thing that's very hard to measure and quantify uh, in a way that works across the the range of people that suffer from it. So so like I say, it's not despite the damage that it does, it's not used as a metric to determine how much help you need from the medical community. Is that, is it often undiagnosed or misdiagnosed? I, I meet a lot of people who say, I, I think my husband has crossed some line and there is permanent damage done to his cognition, you know, and they, is that possible? They say, and I say, well, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but is it hard to diagnose? I, I think, I think it is because it's it's difficult to separate from some of the elements of uh, alcoholism because alcohol mm. itself changes changes personalities so mm -hmm. you you can't you know if someone sobers up and then they're they're a little bit better you know that that personality change you, it also when you're going through mistrust is their personality because they're drinking is it because they've got the brain damage despite the fact that they're not drinking um, I do think it's underdiagnosed and I and I think I I think it's probably much more prevalent um, uh, than people realize in, in loved ones with significant alcohol abuse issues mm. uh, and, and cirrhosis issues again, because if your liver is 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 not functioning properly, there's there's it seems to me there's almost a non-zero chance that you know um, brain damage isn't occurring on some level, uh, not just from the alcohol itself, but from the byproducts of of the body that aren't being processed through the liver. The link between abusive drinking and liver damage is almost as universally understood as the link between smoking and lung cancer. But I think the part where th that some people miss is what the function of the liver is when your liver is damaged. That just doesn't mean you've got this organ that isn't so, you know, jazzy anymore. It it's that that's the filter, man. That is impacting your biology, your neurology there. There it's so such an important organ and not one to be messed with. It's it's the filter, and it's also it's also, I think something like ninety five percent of medicines are processed through the liver. So if you're if you're taking anything for uh, anxiety or depression issues, hmm. you need you need your liver to function to even be able to absorb the 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 medicine that might be helping you. That's so interesting. Yeah. So interesting. So, um, th the result of all of these big medical terms was that your husband. Um, you graciously donated uh, part of your liver to him. Mm -hmm. So he had a living liver um, transplant. If that's something that you as a listener are worried about, thinking about in the process of, again, I recommend you go back to that initial episode 70 because we went into great detail about what that's like, not only for your husband, but for you as the donor. And it was a really interesting conversation about that. Um but I don't, I don't want to get back into that now. I just want everyone to understand this was serious, serious, serious alcoholism. Right. And um, it was serious for you too. That's and right. so my, my, my kind of first question is, so he was drinking on end stage liver disease. Like he had that diagnosis and relapsed. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, went through the liver transplant, had a period of sobriety, but eventually was drinking on 
not only his new liver, but your liver. He knew it was your liver. And I, I, my question is um, more of a statement I want you to react to. He must have been comfortable with the risk of death. I mean, you know, like when I was drinking at my worst, um, I would get my annual physical and my liver numbers were never out of whack. And I was always really curious about that because had they been, that would have yeah. put me into a panic. This yeah. wasn't just liver enzymes. This was big time. And he was he was still comfortable with that risk of death. That's really, it's a really interesting question that you're asking because I, I don't think, I think we're going back to the brain damage here. I, I okay. think he, a lot of people think that you must be actively suicidal to be drinking on somebody else's liver. And I don't think it's that simple. Uh, I think I think when alcohol has superseded even even the closest person to you, even even your wife, even the person who gave you a liver, when your relationship with alcohol has trumped that relationship, I I think your level of denial is is something that's hard for people who don't live there to understand. I my 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 bottom line takeaway after everything that has happened is that he was not actually seeking death. That was not, he, 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 he wasn't suicidal. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, and I, I, like I say, it's, it's, people don't believe me, but they, they might, they might, as this story goes on. But it must, it must've been, I mean, this must've been one of the major conundrums in your life, right? Too, because you're seeing this and you're thinking, absolutely. if I was standing on the train tracks and the train was coming, I'd get off the fucking train tracks. This is exactly. not a hard decision. So exactly. what, what was that like for you to process um, his, you know, wondering about his emotional state and the actions he's taking despite obvious threats? You know, the, I, I told him once, you know, I, I wish you, I wish you'd just gone off and fucked somebody else. You know what I mean? I wish you'd just cheated on me because that I could wrap my head around. That would have made sense. Um, and, and in the way anything like that could make sense. But this level of betrayal, I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around. So the, the level of anger and rejection that I felt was, is something that, you know, I'm still, I'm still dealing with three years later in a different, in, in obviously a different mechanism, but um, yeah, it, it, it messes with you. It, it really, yeah. it really messes with you. Wow. I, I can only imagine, you know, and especially when it's, when it's such a serious kind of um, flying in the face of the medical advice and just Absolutely. ignoring the world around you, I'm sure everyone in your lives is talking about him. What is Todd doing? You know, what help can we get for Todd? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm sure this is just an amplified version of what we see every day of a case where you, the spouse, you, the support system, you, the person who loves this person, your needs are completely being ignored because what he is doing is so severe. So you're trying to process this relationship that you have with this person who's who's just making these devastating decisions. And I can't imagine many people are concerned about you. They're too busy being concerned about him, right? You know, I, I had right before we got divorced, uh, I, I had a conversation with with his with his uh, medical um, team. Uh, Post transplant, you actually are, are meant to be 
engaged regularly with with uh, medical aftercare. And that makes sense. Everybody would expect that you have to have tests to to make sure that the liver is not being rejected by the body, make sure you know enzyme levels are, are remaining appropriate. Um, and I I had I had gotten a call from from that team telling me that you know we haven't heard from Todd in a long time, and and he's been telling me that he's been and this was part of our you know i can't i can't i can't be the person who takes care of all of this all the time this is on you now um and getting that call from from his team um I, it was the first time i'd said to anybody you know I, we live in the same house but i i don't think we're together anymore and this would have been mm. probably february of of 2020 and and we you know i i started the divorce proceedings in july of that year but I, I just I just said, you know, I I I don't know what to do. And they said, well, you know, there there there's nothing you can do. And I said, you know, I, I don't I don't fear for myself because I, I, I don't feel like I'm I'm not I'm not in danger. Uh and they said, you know, Todd's a danger to himself. And and I said, Yeah, I, I agree with that. But the the closing part of that conversation with, with his with his hepatologist was, well, you know, you you you're a donor, so you're always gonna be our family. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's complicated. There's care, care takes different forms. You restore, takes different forms. You restore a little bit of my faith, my lost faith in the medical community. community. That that was a hepatologist, not a, not a therapist or psychologist that made that phone call that because, you know, you hear so many stories about we're here to, you know, draw Mm -hmm. blood and look at Mm -hmm. the results and tell you what they say. And, but the Mm -hmm. fact that there was some care and concern in that phone call, is really nice to hear. I I think his team was amazing. I really do. Well, and you, you talked in the original podcast about how um, they, you know, not only were they trying to save him, but they were, I mean, you were their patient too. They were Mm -hmm. taking a part of you, which goes against everything that they try to do, right. They're trying to Mm -hmm. um, do no harm. But they they were also very concerned with your well being, which is a testament to you know the the care that you received. That's yeah. that part that part that little sliver is is really great. Catch us up on the story if you would. Um, so divorce proceedings in July of twenty. We recorded the podcast in January of twenty one. You were divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, he was. I, I don't remember if at the moment he was actively drinking, but certainly he had drank on the liver. Relapse was part of the story, even post-surgery. Um, what happened from there? Oh, uh, yeah. He, How's he, that for an he, open-ended question? That, that was a pretty open-ended question. <laughs> let me let me see where I go with that. Um, yeah, he he um, drinking was was part of his lifestyle, and that was something that um, that was one of the reasons for the divorce. Is I I just I, I reached a point where I just I kept finding bottles there there kept being confrontations about i can't do this we need to see a, a marriage counselor we'd see a marriage counselor he it wouldn't go well uh it was coming back on me well, you know why why are you you know this is your fault that i'm like this i'm i'm trying to get away from this marriage and so so eventually you know i i, I gave into that i didn't i i actually had seen a lawyer a, a, quite some time before i called my lawyer to let them know I was ready to um, do the divorce. Um, so I, yeah, I, um, 
that the 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 drinking was just something I couldn't. He, I, I couldn't tell him he couldn't do it. That was the bottom line. That's and that's something that takes a long time to accept when when you've when you've invested every everything you've got into ensuring ensuring someone's survival. And the, and the whole point of this, you know, a lot of people have have said it's an amazing thing that you did. And I and I I, I I'm not trying to minimize it, but I want people to know that I did it for me too, because mm -hmm. I I didn't I didn't want to be a 48 year old widow. And that yeah. was the, and that was where I was heading. There was no question. So, um, but you, I, you go ahead. You not you not only you not only got a divorce from him, mm -hmm. and we we have talked a lot on the podcast in our groups. You referenced it on the original podcast that you reached this point where you know when you know, and mm -hmm. you had a kind of. Um, vivid turning point when you said, that's it, it's over. But yeah. what's unique about your situation is you're not just divorcing this person who's unable to stop drinking. You're divorcing your own, you know, your own chunk of meat. A part, a part of yourself. Yeah. This is, this is really richly, you know, metaphorical, right? You know, I'm, I, you have to, you have to cut, there's a tie between us that's made of two pounds of liver. Right. And, and what do you, you know, and, and that's, Another thing that 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 I've thought a lot is that you don't you don't save someone just to abandon them, right? So so the, that was a huge a huge thing for me to try to get over. But the 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 thing and you know I know I know we both have our opinions about twelve step programs, uh, and I've I've interfaced with them. I I did Codependence Anonymous, but the first thing you're supposed to accept is that you know, you have no power, right? That's, that's step one. Right. There are things I can't control. And I, I really had to get to that point before I could release the relationship. Yeah. I, I, there's, I can't, I can't control the fact that he's going to drink. I can make the only decision I can make about that is whether I'm going to continue to have it in my life. And that was, yeah. and that was the, the final choice I was faced with is I can't, I can't keep feeling the way I feel every single time I'm confronted with him drinking and lying about it. Yeah. And that and that was just it, it almost feels like not a choice. It's it's I can't have it in my life. And that's the mechanism to get it out of my life. You know? Yeah. You guys don't have kids, but you do have dogs and you're very fond of your dogs. And uh -huh. I have a tremendous amount of respect for that. Uh, so he moved out of the house, but in the same neighborhood or just down the street a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. This was funny. Uh, um, he, he was a five minute walk, a, a one minute car ride. Right. Yeah, he was right down the street. Yeah. But but because you didn't, you know, you weren't dealing with custody of children passing back and forth. You you didn't have to be in contact on a regular basis, but you were occasionally in contact. Right. Isn't there a story about a time when he locked himself out or something? Yeah. And still yeah. Yeah. That was funny. He uh, uh, got a knock on my door on a Saturday night when I'm definitely not expecting anyone. And I hear <laughs> I I. I locked myself out. I need my key. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I remember that voice. It was funny. Cause it took me, I could even see him through, through the uh, window of my front door. And it, it took me a minute to recognize him as, an, as if it had been that long. I think it had been maybe a year by that point that we'd been divorced. Um, but, but yeah, he actually, he, he, um, he, he texted really frequently. That was, that was um, something that surprised me because in in leaving the relationship he was definitely very uh he wanted everyone uh, you know and i i say everyone he actually didn't interact much with p 
people that he knew in in the real world, but he was active on social media. Okay. Uh, so so there was a lot of social media posting about he never wanted to be married, and you know he, it was it was so much better to be alone, and all all of these things that I I in a, an extensive amount of work with a therapist subsequently I, I've come to embrace the idea that uh, was a survival technique for himself to not feel the loss of a relationship. Yeah. To, I mean, to... it, it's the only thing that makes sense, right? I mean, because you were, I mean, you were a caregiver to the extent that you gave your liver. So there, and, and you know, there was never infidelity. There was, there was, you know, there's no dark side to this story that yeah. he had anything to be, um, you know, full of resentment about. I mean, that it, yeah. the, the defense mechanism theory is the only thing that, that makes sense. It's, you it's know, and, I'm, it's the one I'm going with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's natural if, if something that was for a long time private is all of a sudden public, which is necessitated by divorce. You can't hide the fact that you're no longer married and living together. Right. Um, I'm sure that the options for explanation to the outside world swim in your head and you pick the one that seems the less damaging to yourself, especially, especially if you're suffering from alcoholism, which I have come since our original conversation three years ago, I have come to be just firmly a believer that alcoholism is a disease of low self-esteem, like yeah. a lot of maladaptive coping mechanism, you know, issues are. So it's not only alcoholism, but if you're in that state, you're going to grasp for the thing that least makes you feel worse about yourself since you already feel terrible about yourself right, in all likelihood. Right. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Being so close, five minute walk, one minute car ride, uh, occasionally seeing each other. Did you, did you make an effort to, and while well, you're texting each other, did you make an effort to keep up on his medical and health condition? Was that? No. No, I no. didn't. No, I didn't. And that's actually sort of the, that's, that's, that's one of the things about, about the, the communication um, pipeline. It went one way. He, he reached out and I would respond. I, I very seldom reached out to him because part of my goal, the, the thing is, is that it was clear to me that he was going to drink himself to death. Like there was, there, there's one end to this. And, and I, mm -hmm. you know, all the effort and all the all the in, internal organs invested in that aside you know bought maybe a little extra time but the end the end result was clear and i had decided that the the progression of the disease before the transplant was so terrifying and so ugly that i i knew i didn't want to see that i didn't want to be part of that so i i you know i was not I was not present. I was not keeping track. He he contacted friends of ours and asked about um, what to do for COVID uh, vaccinations. And they were trying to get information for him. And I was like, you know, if he were talking to his medical staff, they could help him because certainly they have information about that. And it was it was interesting for me to see other people interacting with that and just kind of taking him at his word as as I did for so long you know, mm. oh, things are normal and you, you just need this information and I'm going to help you with that. So he, he found help occasionally elsewhere, but he didn't see, he didn't seek it much. That's, that's really the only time I'm aware that he actually even sought medical advice from anyone else. Obviously he's not mm. going to go to a doctor because they're going to want to look at his liver and his drinking and put him in rehab. So yeah, he yeah. was avoiding all of that. 
Yeah. It, that's so interesting. I think, um, so, so, um, Todd did eventually die. He, yes, he did drink himself to death. I think there, would you share with us what the actual medical cause of death is? He died of, um, hepatorenal syndrome, which is kidney failure, secondary to liver failure. And I have a I have a copy of the autopsy and the the thing that I would I would mention is it it would be much shorter to tell you what was right with his body when he died. Mm. There was there was nothing nothing was okay. His his heart his heart was enlarged, his kidneys had shut down, his liver was damaged, his brain was damaged, uh, his lungs were congested, his spleen was atrophied. His pancreas were atrophied. Uh, mm. His intestines were um, uh, studied, studded with varices. Mm. I mean, there was, a, there was just the the extent to, of damage is is a remarkable thing to to have you know revealed over three typewritten pieces of paper. One of the frustrations that I feel about the link between alcohol and death mm-hmm. is I referenced earlier the direct line between smoking and lung cancer. Like everybody understands it. The, the lung cancer is the deadly portion of that. That's what actually takes your life eventually Yep. with alcohol. There are so many organs involved that you can often in, in, Cancer, you know, included in the things that can happen as a result of alcohol. Alcohol is a class one carcinogen. Um, But you can read a medical cause of death and not immediately understand that that was related to alcohol. Whereas, again, if it's a smoker who dies and you knew they were a smoker and you knew that it's lung cancer, like there's no no question. And I, I feel like like that's a frustration for me as an outside observer. I've never, you know, I've never been through what you've been through, but it's a frustration for me that, um, you know, people don't make that direct correlation. Um, that's there. It's definitely there. The medical community understands it's there, even though it's, it's so rarely talked about it. Is there any frustration for you or were you just too close to it? And you're like, Matt, that's a theoretical question. Who gives a shit? But is there any frustration for you that Todd died of kidney failure and, um, the whole world doesn't know that that's automatically coming from alcohol. I don't, I, Matt, I, I've never been accused of underthinking anything. So you can, <laughs> you, you, you're going to, you can, you can hit me up about anything and I'm not going to say, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about that a lot. And I, 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 the, the thing that I think, and I know, I know this is a part of the conversation a lot of the time in dealing with alcoholism is the uh, morality that's assigned to to this disease uh you know you're not gonna you're not gonna find anybody who who is a cancer patient who is subjected to the same level of uh morality about their condition and Mm -hmm. and about you know also also the caretakers of someone who who has that you know there's 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 this there's this other piece this other artificial piece that's put on top of it where we all talk about the disease model but we can't get rid of the morality model and that's that's blinding that's blinding so many people to to the medical realities of of alcohol alcohol consumption at at any level and and you know 
we, we, we turn into the biggest pains in the ass that when nobody wants to hear this, this is not, this is not a culturally popular message. So mm -hmm. I think, I think those things all just kind of contrive to, to make these things. Well, he, he must've been really messed up, you know, or, or yeah. this, this must be a really extreme case. And, you know, I, I, I don't, it's, I don't think it is. Yeah. It's fascinating. We can other people, even within our own, you know, tribe, right? We, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. yes, I'm an alcoholic, but thank God I'm not that kind of an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. such a, and you're right. Mm -hmm. As much as we've accepted the fact that this is a disease, we can't seem to shed the stigma. Um, yeah. fascinating, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. So you weren't, uh, actively pursuing medical updates and, and no. just well-being updates. But eventually, Not at all. if I remember the story correctly, you were contacted by a friend of Todd's um, who wanted you to know the end was coming or can actually, you get no. involved actually, here? Toward yeah, actually, Todd himself uh, texted me August 12th, okay. 2022. Uh, I don't know, 7.35 p.m. You know, I know these things, Matt. <laughs> you are good. You are you know, good about that. You know, I've, you know, I've looked at that text a, a few billion times. Again, I don't mm. underthink anything. Um, yeah, I got a text from Todd one Friday night. Just I'd, I'd had my pizza. I was sitting on my couch with my dog, not ready for anything. Got a text from Todd that said, uh, I, um, can you take can you take bats? Bats is the dog the the one of our two dogs that he had taken with him i had the other uh in the divorce that was how the that was how custody worked sure um, so got got the text saying can you take bats for a little bit and i i was like sure what's up and he texted back i can't get down the stairs hmm. And all the klaxons all the all the fire bells all of the alarms went off i was like this is this is it that you you have known this was coming for at least at least a, a year maybe two years now you've you've known this is the the end result and so uh, an hour elapsed after i had agreed that i would take bats um before he replied again which concerned me as well because obviously he was having he was having trouble not not paying attention not not doing well uh so i asked when he wanted me to you know come come get her anyway we went we went on on for a little bit and i i, I went over um and he was he was uh hiding in the bathroom on the first floor right right as as you come through the door and i i said you know look one of my conditions to taking bats is i've got to see you i i've, I've got to see what's going on and he came out in his underwear and a t-shirt and he he looked like an illustrated medical model of someone in end-stage liver disease. Mm. Jaundice, ascites, that's the swelling of, of the, the, the uh, abdomen uh, from water retention because your kidneys aren't working. Uh, obvious mental confusion, balance issues, uh, atrophied muscle. So he was kind of wasted, uh, you know, muscular in, in terms of his musculature, he was kind of wasting away. And it was, I hadn't seen him for, I hadn't seen him since April. So this was August. It had been a while. We'd, we'd communicated via text and that was it. So it was really stunning to see how, how sick he was. And I, and I, I looked at him and I said, you are dying of liver failure. 
And it was, you know, we were right back in the middle of a million other arguments we'd had. I'm fine. I'm just tired. I just need to sleep. Can you just take baths? And and I, I basically, long story, very long story short, I, I refused to, to, to leave until I'd called an ambulance. Uh, and this is, this is, I, I kind of alluded to this piece earlier, uh, when I said he's, he wasn't suicidal. Um, he was just deeply ill. Um, EMTs show up, uh, four of them in an ambulance, uh, and one of them sort of does a circuit of the house. And I've explained the situation. He's a, he's a transplant patient. Uh, he's, he's clearly, uh, in organ failure. Uh, we I need to get to the hospital. I bet the fact that the fact that you can mention that he's a transplant patient saves a lot of time in trying to convince medical personnel that he really is an alcoholic or are you just a crazy overbearing, you know, wife, ex-wife. I bet that's I mean, I'm not trying to put a silver lining on this, but that must no. at least ease the conversation, right? It gives it gives context to to the to the issue that they're that they're gonna find. And then when they come mm -hmm. in and they see so I had gone upstairs and gotten him a, a pair of pajama pants to put on and he had managed to get them up to his knees this man at the, at the time was 51 and mm -hmm. could only get a pair of pajama pants up to his knees and then was done it was just physically couldn't couldn't go any further mm -hmm. um but the the leading mt was kind of doing a, a rounds of the house just to check things out and she came back and said sir uh your house is i i, I see you're a liver transplant patient your house is is basically full of nothing but alcohol and mixers so what's up? And he's like, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I drink. And she's like, okay. So the other thing I'm seeing is uh, you've got tons of vitamins around. Uh, what's that about, sir? And he said, I haven't been feeling very well and I'm trying to feel better. Oof. Cognitive dissonance, the very definition, right? Not suicidal, acutely yeah. not, not suicidal, but unable to make, unable to make the connection between his drinking and the state that he was in, 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 wow. in such, in such a perfect state of denial about what that was. And he, he was about to refuse to go with, um, uh, to go with the ambulance. Uh, but then the, uh, the lead EMT said, look, sir, you, you can refuse, you can refuse uh, to be taken to the hospital. That's, that's your right. If you do that, I will make you sign a paper that says you've refused service, and then I will call um, animal control, and I will have your dog uh, uh, taken. Yeah. And that is that was the thing that induced him to um, agree to agree to go. Um, so the. I was curious when you said that the initial reach out to you was, "Can you come and get bats?" Mm -hmm. Do you, and again, overprocessor that you are, I know you've thought about this. Do you think that was a cry for help? Like when you come get the dog, you're going to have to see the condition I'm in, or does he really just concern for the dog? I don't think Todd ever did cries for help. I okay. think he was so bottled up, and I, I think he. Look, Bats was his one true love at the end. He mm -hmm. loved that little girl and he wasn't able to take care of her. And when I showed up in the house, there were little sticks of dog poop all over all over the place. It smelled like it smelled like uh, yeah. dog urine everywhere. It was it, he had, it had been a, more than a few days since she'd been outside. And it had probably been a little while since she'd been fed. And mm. I, I, I know it was it was he was certainly. <clears throat> mentally present enough to know that he wasn't able to take care of her and 
that was more of a concern for him than for himself. Okay. And I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I feel confident that that, that was his thought process. I need, I need to do something to take care of the dog. And that was why he was hiding. He, he, he expected me to take the dog and leave with him in the bathroom, having never seen him because he yeah. had forgotten, he'd forgotten what being married to me was like, poor guy. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Right. So, so he goes with the empty. Where, where's my recollection of this friend coming in? Was the friend sitting bedside while, while you were, or am I just nuts? Maybe I'm just nuts. I don't, there, there were, um, I, I, that night to get him to the, to the emergency room was, was a lot of work. It, it, I, I got, I got to his place at nine and I think we probably got him to the ER sometime before midnight. Uh, and I actually called some friends in, in, uh, California where, where, where he was from, where people that he'd stayed close to, but didn't know the extent of his, of his illness. And, uh, I actually had him talk to them and they were surprised to hear how he sounded. Uh, and both, both of his, uh, very close friends actually came out to visit, um, before he died. Yeah. That's, that's what it is, I guess. Yeah. Okay. You're not, cra- you're not crazy. Not completely. Not completely. Yeah. Um, okay. So how long from the time that the EMTs came to the house, how much longer did he make it? Uh, they came on, uh, August 12th and he died on September 7th. Um, and he was a really, he was a really tough case. They transferred him from our local hospital to the hospital where the transplant had taken place, uh, so that he could be cared for. Uh, and, um, he, his, his kidneys were, were really the problem. And um, it, he, he seemed like he would, he would be able to recover uh, the, the week before he died. Um, they were looking for um, rehab that included physical therapy because he was unable to walk basically. Um, so they were kind of looking for um some facility that he could he could go to rehab he could get dialysis and get physical therapy and that was that was kind of um what the hope was um probably at the start of uh september but that that labor day weekend uh he started to bleed uh and the bleeds just they they couldn't they couldn't really find the source and and they were they were working really hard to figure out what was going on and probably like three days before he died, his um, attending physician contacted me and said, we look in order to, in order for us to continue on this path, he needs to be getting better and he's not getting better. Yeah. Every, everything we do makes him worse. So this is the point where we think about what our next plan is. And, and, and again, I, I, I had, I, I'm not supposed to be part of this. I'm not supposed to be part of this at all. And yet I am. Um, sneakily uh, is is it because they had no one else to con like your next of kin no i'm not no i'm not i'm the ex-wife i don't even exist in terms of the the medical or legal hierarchy uh, at all however for the um transplant we did powers of attorney okay uh, that remained in funk that remained in uh practice power of attorney for healthcare, and i was the the divorce didn't nullify that okay Mm -hmm. interesting yeah okay uh, so yeah, um, as talk about stuck, how that made, talk about how that made you feel, forget about the legal was, part of it. 
you you've worked so hard to detach right and to go about your way and try to heal yourself and now you're I, sucked back in by some legal piece of paper what is that I like i was so i was so angry so i got i got his i got his friends to come out and my plan was to just put put this over okay guys here's the deal have fun good luck uh sayonara uh and it turns out that that was that was harder to do um these these were my friends too and i had kind of lost lost track of them you know how friends sort of follow divorces there there are schisms there but when i when i saw them again i i i, I remembered the friendship and i i i didn't want to just i i, I was actually in, i was about to write a five page you know history of Todd's health and hand it off to them. And then I thought, why don't I just talk to these people like a normal human being who hasn't, isn't like PTSD light or whatever, you know? Um, and I, I was very glad to, to talk to them because they were, Oh, I, I, I wish I had a, I wish I had a good description for, they were, they were in disbelief, but they had a different, I, I'm, I'm jumping around a little. Um, when his, one of his friends came out the the one who came out first right after Todd had been hospitalized he he came he came with me to the hospital we went together and like i said my plan was just to kind of let them go and i did i did to some extent but i i i drove i drove this friend to the hospital and and drove him back to the hotel and when we got one of the things that he'd said to Todd is and i recognize this he's like so we'll just Todd we'll just get you well and then we'll get you off the alcohol mm. and then and we're, and we're here for you we can do that and it was so just, familiar. Just those two steps, those two yeah. simple steps, huh? It's just okay, that easy. Good. It's just that easy. And I'm, waiting, and I'm in the back of the room and Todd, Todd says to his friend, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, that sounds great. And we got into the car and I, what I couldn't believe, um, this friend said to me, that was Todd lying, wasn't it? And I was like, I can't believe you spotted it that quickly because mm. it was years, it was years before I could spot, spot him lying and his friend mm -hmm. spotted it right away. So, you know, I felt I, I felt like I didn't want to not be part of it at that point, you know, because I, I th these were familiar things to me. And I, and I also felt like I was the only one who really knew. Yeah. You know, just given the way Todd and I had, had been what our relationship was like, I was the only one who had the information. I still when, when he went to the hospital that that first night, I actually stayed that whole night with him because we were waiting for results and he was in and out. And I just thought. Somebody ought to be here to tell them what's going on. That's kind of fascinating. The Your interaction goes from what it had been for so many years because I love this person, because I'm bonded to this person, because um, you know I've made this commitment to this person. It goes from that to I'm the only option. Like there's no plan B. And so, you know, again, I think I used the word obligation. It goes from out of love to out of there's no other choice um and but but you're you're kind of trapped in that again that's god what a what a it'd be different if you said you know the end is clearly near and mm -hmm. i in my heart want to be here um mm -hmm. that's a different reality than <laughs> there's this power of attorney and no one else so <laughs> here i and am it again trapped and it and it's complicated because because it started as trapped and then it and then it became something else. It became something else. Talk about that. I will try. Okay. 
there's something really unique in the experience of having someone die when you know they're going to die and you feel like you're the only one who really knew that or the only one who'd really accepted it. And then to have that event come to pass. And you would think that I, of all people, would probably have been better prepared for the death of a partner than just about anybody else. And nothing really prepares you for it. So, you know, I had, I, my goal was to not be part of this process and I ended up there anyway. And once we'd made the decision to uh, move to palliative care, basically the, the goal was to make him comfortable because he was clearly dying. And that, mm -hmm. and that was the, that was the conversation with the, with his attending is there, there's nothing else we can do. Mm -hmm. Um, so um, that once that decision had been made, he advised me, you should, if, if you intend to come say goodbye, you, you should come up because it, it probably won't be a lot longer. So I, I did, I did go up. I did spend some time with, with Todd. Um, and I, I met, I met his care staff and that was, and that was really that was really fascinating because our situation wasn't, wasn't a usual situation and it wasn't clear. Um, people weren't aware that I wasn't his wife, for example, despite the fact that I hadn't been there at all. It was, it mm. was just, it was just kind of, it, it was kind of a strange, a strange scenario. Um, but I spent, I spent time with him that, that evening. Um, and he was, um, he was mostly unconscious for, for that. He, he would respond to, to some noises, but really, really was not responsive to much. Uh, I, I brought things with me. I, I brought my wedding ring. I brought a, a scarf that was Bats, Bats the dog that, you know, he could have with him. Um, I, I put the wedding rings around his neck uh, on a on a chain just so he wouldn't be by himself. I read some notes that that I had written him a long time ago, and and nothing much got a response. But um, as I was getting ready to go, I I told him I was I was going to leave, and that I hoped he could I hoped he could hear me and could understand what I was saying because what I was about to say was really important. Um, and then I told him that I forgave him and he took a deep breath and his eyes opened and he squeezed my hand <clears throat> and, and that was the only response I got that evening. <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, I, I, I left and he died two days later. Uh, wow. And then I went, and then I went back to the hospital and being in the presence of him, being in the presence of his body changed my whole, a friend of mine said something that was really profound. She said, it makes sense. You can love him again because he's safe. He can't hurt you anymore. Mm. Wow. 
and I think that's what happened is that in, in passing, he was, he was able to become the person that he always was. And I'd never been able to properly mourn for our relationship until he died. And, wow. and, um, and so the, the, the experience that I have now is, you know, when I tell people about the, the situation, you know, he, he took my liver and then he drank with it and they're so furious. And I'm like, yeah, but no, that's not the whole, so, so I'm, I'm all the way on the other side now of trying to, trying to convince people that that wasn't him, you know, that was a disease. Mm. Wow. So, wow. yeah, so, so. The 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 preparation that you made for that final visit, the things that you thought would be important to bring, the rings on the chain that you put around his neck, all of these things. When you look back, does that does that bring you comfort with the way you handled those final? I mean, you I I can think of a variety of ways you could have gone, but the decisions you made and the way you approached that seems to me in the face of death, um, which I can't imagine what that's like. I'm not going to pretend that I can, but it seems to me that that would be uh, the best of the bad alternatives. Do you feel, I don't want to use the word proud of yourself, but do you feel any sense of relief from the way you handled those final moments? Uh, I did for a while. I did for a while. And, and I'm, I'm about to, uh, embark on a topic that's probably controversial and is, is probably going to be hard for, for some people to hear. Um, as I, as I processed his death, I, I, I had to deal with a lot of guilt. And one, one part of the guilt is that I said goodbye so soon and that he died alone in the hospital. And <laughs> I, if I could go back and do that differently, I would have, I would have been there when he died. I wouldn't have just said goodbye and then just, you know, left. But, you, but, okay, this is really interesting. Your, your transition in mindset and emotions from you, and you use the word safe. And I think that's the perfect word from someone who had for many years proven himself unsafe and and just to clarify, this isn't someone who beat you. This this wasn't no. physical abuse. No, no. But at all. but I hate I hate that in the addiction community and in the recovery community, that is the place where we often draw the line and say, right. oh, you know, at least he wasn't beating me. Uh, the this that's not where the safety. That's not the line for safety. The line for safety is when you don't know what you're going to get from one minute to another with the right. person with whom you have this mutual protection agreement. You don't and know whether they're lying to you or not. That's right. That's right. All of, all of these things make the environment unsafe. And so you had over a period of years transitioned to a point where he was no longer safe. And in the time starting with his hospitalization and, and in, in his passing, you have transitioned back to a point of loving the person he was before yes. that happened. But in yes. that moment, you were just where you were in that process. You weren't ready to sit there until he died. Like yep. that wasn't yes. in you yet. 
That's very true. And it's something, there's something, I, it's, I, I, I'm, again, writer, be damned. I, I, I'm struggling to find the words for what happens when you're in the presence of, of the dead body of someone that you love. It's, the the alteration is is remarkable and sudden. Like, I, I, I knew I was, I knew I was, I knew I was going to be sad. You know, I, I went there, not, you know, I was going to collect my wedding rings and get Bats's scarf back and, you know, take his, I'd actually taken his effects before, which was a surprise. I've still, the bag is still sitting in my closet untouched because I, I haven't figured out what I'm going to do with it. Mm-hmm. It's been a year. Um, but there's just, something happened to me in in that room with his body they left his his whole care team were like we'll let, we'll leave you alone with him and so i i i the the first thing i did is asked him how did this happen to us and i'm still i'm still looking for the answer to that question mm. and the, the the next thing that i did because i'm prone to curiosity is i i i walked around his body i i touched his feet i touched his hands um, I looked at his arms, which were covered with um, bruises from IVs. He'd had so many IVs in him over the three and a half weeks that it took him to die. Um, I opened it, I opened his eyes. And there's a shock. You understand that pupils are fixed and dilated, but you don't understand it until you see it. Mm. So I popped open both eyes and confirmed, yes, not that I didn't believe them that he wasn't dead. He was clearly dead and he was cooling to my touch while I was even there. And like I say, there's just something about that experience that changed him for me. It, you People use this word in situations like this all the time. And I'm wondering if it's even appropriate. Was there closure? actually there was there was a closure on one piece but an opening of another even bigger piece that that is associated with the grief and grief is huge grief is just huge and hard to hard to get to the edges of you know it's hard to it's hard to locate yourself in that space does does the fact that this was technically a preventable death nothing you could have done to prevent it I want to be really clear about that, but technically he could have, it it was technically a preventable death. Does that add to the grief? You know, I hate to say, because I, I, I feel like grief, uh, I wouldn't diminish anyone else's grief for, you know, a, a, a natural death. There, there is a, there is something especially for someone like me who doesn't who doesn't believe that I'm going to see him again or that he went someplace better I don't get those I don't get those comforts the fact that it happened so early for him 51 is just so young mm-hmm. it just seems like it, it that that's part of it is there there could have been so much more mm-hmm. and 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 in in kind of rehabilitating my my attitude toward him or my vision of our relationship. One of the things that I I'm, I'm dealing with in the memoir is the ways that I admired him, even in the illness. I mean, um, he, he wasn't an alcoholic. I wrote his obituary with, with uh, help from his friends 
and I didn't mention alcoholism in that. And I, and I struggled with that. And I even thought I might, might ask you about that. And I didn't. Um, and I, I, I didn't want him to be defined by, by that, by that part of himself. <clears throat> so something that I think about a lot is that he was drinking after the surgery, but the other thing that he was doing is that he was writing. He was, he actually wrote and published a, a an indie comic book um, that was something he wanted to do his whole life, you know? And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to have a relationship with him that's different now, which is kind of strange since he's not here, mm. but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm ready to, to change change that relationship that's so interesting when i when i listened to our conversation from three years ago you talked i mean in detail about all of the appointments that you were making Mm -hmm. for him it was your job to figure out the medical stuff therapists as well um so mental health physical health all of this fell on you you donated your liver as we've already said so at the time you were doing what is a very natural reaction for the spouse of an alcoholic. You were doing all the things you could think of to try to make him better. Sherry and I have come to believe after being in this world for, for a few years now, quite a few years now that, um, you know, detachment really is the, is the only hope, the only way that a spouse or a loved one can influence the drinker is to emotionally remove themselves from the situation and perhaps physically remove themselves from the situation. And sometimes that causes enough pain because I think pain is the driving force um, that causes some people to make the decision. They have to get out of that pain. And so for instance, just to, just to make this really simple to understand when Sherry completely detached from me, that put me in so much pain that I could add that to the depression and anxiety. And I could say, okay, I can't, I can't handle this. And sobriety was my only choice. So we've come to believe that detachment is the only possible option. And, and we also understand that sometimes detachment is effective and sometimes it just isn't sometimes separating and divorce and moving on emotionally. It, it's, it's too little too late or the, I mean, cause you know, alcoholism is really, it's not really about the alcohol, right? There right. are these underlying issues that we are medicating. And again, I used this term earlier, but we found this maladaptive coping mechanism to cover up the thing. That's the real problem. And sometimes oh, that yeah. real problem is, is such that even the detachment, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't cause the person to find sobriety and start doing the work to heal those much deeper, much more serious wounds. Well, I and think so one of, thing, one of the things is that if it, you, they, anyone needs to be able to identify correctly, the source of the pain. Mm-hmm. Right. And if, if yeah. you, if you're, if your uh, whole survival mechanism is, is um, oriented to reassigning the pain elsewhere, you know what I mean? It, it's not yes. the alcoholism. It isn't the alcoholism. It's not, it's not even alcoholism for heaven's sakes. I'm just drinking, you know, like a normal, like a normal adult. That's not the problem. The problem is this other thing. And and once, once that's, I, I, I'm not sure. I know some people do are, are able to um, recalibrate or able to 
reorient uh, correctly. And I think that's actually a terrifically hard thing for, for people who suffer from alcoholism, I think. Um, well, you, you make a good point because part of the problem is what the blame gets assigned to is often also not the real problem. Often the it's not I'm a normal I just drink you know I drink for stress release and I drink mm -hmm. because I work really hard. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is I'm married to a bitch. Mm -hmm. The problem is we have bad communication in our relationship, and mm -hmm. and so it's so complex because not only um, is alcoholism not really the problem, the thing we assign the problem to is often also not really the problem. Right. The problem is you know childhood trauma or. I, you know, I put myself through too much stress and pressure and, um, you know, I can't manage that. And so I'm using this substance to manage it for me. Yeah. Um, Al alcoholism is a symptom. Yeah. Finding the pain point is, is so challenging, but, but bringing this back to you, you have done every, like literally everything you did the I am going to overfunction for this person. I am going to do all of the stuff that they should be doing on their own because I love them so much. And that's, I'm the spouse and that's what I do. And it comes naturally. Mm -hmm. You've done that. And then you reached that point where you knew when you knew and mm -hmm. you, you divorced, you um, started to try to heal and create a separate life for yourself. And you did all of, all of the detachment stuff too. And, and he still died anyway. Mm -hmm. And so my going back to this topic of guilt as an outside observer, and I'm a little closer than an outside observer because I love you and I've known you for many, many years. And in recent years, we've uh, gotten back acquainted, you know, relatively closely. So as sort of an outside observer, I look at it and I say, Barbara did not only everything she could have done, she did probably three times as much as what most people would even have thought to have done. Like your slate's clean sister. You got <laughs> nothing to feel guilty about, but, but do you like, like how do you reconcile that you did all this stuff and he still died anyway? That's a big loaded question. It, it is a big loaded question. And one of the things that, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at now in, in, in writing the story that, that I'm writing is going back, going back to, the love part of the story and when you look at the love story i'm having real trouble with the fact that i'm having to unravel my own issues of alcohol dependence he didn't he didn't do this alone for most of our for most of our relationship um for most of our relationship alcohol was more than welcome it was uh it was more than a lifestyle it was a quasi-religion uh, the second piece of furniture we ever built the first the first was a shelf for snakes i'll get into that some other time <laughs> Our, we used to keep snakes um the second uh piece of furniture we ever built together was a bar a beautiful bar mm. and those were always the gifts that we gave to each other bar related things uh and when i'm trying to think and when i'm trying to think about our relationship and why I stayed in it and what the love meant. So much of it centers around alcohol. So much ends up forgotten by me. I don't, I don't, there, there's so much missing data because our relationship was so, so connected with alcohol. Well, and just around this, this part of the conversation out for our listeners, 
in our conversation three years ago, you talked about a conversation you guys had over a weed and mimosa brunch. I remember that. And, and I actually love the way you described it, it because you talked about the Southern California sunny Sunday morning yeah. and how idyllic it was because having been there, having been someone who glorified alcohol to that extent, I get it. I get it. Yeah. In fact, when you, you know, I was never much of a, I was never at all a weed smoker, but when you talked about the weed and, and uh, mimosa brunch, oh, I, I even seven years sober got a little tinge of, oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, that would be great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Todd's, yeah. Todd's comment at the time was, and, and I remember this was just such a, a great, it was just a perfect morning. It was gorgeous. I, I don't know if the barbershop, there was a barbershop quartet that used to practice next door. I mean, Are you just, serious? I'm not even making it up. I, I, how would I even think to make that up? But it was such an <laughs> idyllic thing. And uh, Branford Marsalis was on, on PBS. Uh, there was a concert going on and Todd Todd's just smoking and he's like, we're so bohemian. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that we definitely enjoyed that it was it was a big part of our, our relationship but the, the other thing that I'm having to uncover is my own emotional unavailability and you know it's easy Todd's not here to defend himself it's easy for you know it's easy for him to be the guy with all the all the problems but in in looking back there's a there's a a Sondheim song I think and one of the lyrics from it is marry me just a little love me just enough and I think he and I worked well together because we had the same difficulty with emotional attachment the same emotional unavailability and that's something so, that's kind of surprising to find at this point so you're looking at the degree to which the stuff that you did that brought you together was also a bit of a maladaptive coping mechanism for you Yes, sir. Yes, I am. That's interesting. Not loving what I'm finding. Yeah. But yeah. So trying to be trying to be honest about it anyway. Does I mean, I think you're saying this without saying this, but guilt lives in those spaces as well. For sure. For sure. Mm. Mm. Wow. Do you do you get any consolation from the societal piece that we talk a lot about? in our groups and on the podcast, the fact that these substances are everywhere and what you were doing was socially acceptable and you were young and in your twenties and how were you supposed to know better anyway? I, 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 I do, I, I do. And I don't, and it's complicated. Uh, I'm going to, I've, I've, I've had, I've had several people ask me, you must sure. I mean, you must surely regret giving him your liver. And the answer to that question is no, mm. I don't, I don't have any regret. And, and so I guess, I guess if, if I don't have any regret about that, it doesn't make sense to have any regret about any of the rest of it. And, and this is me kind of talking to myself too, you know, trying to coach myself through this as, as best I can. Um, and, and this is a love story. It, it and and not and just because a love story ends in someone dying doesn't mean that the love didn't exist i love that you describe it that way um, there's someone that i've gotten to know quite well over the last few years who she is passionately angry at disney for the way they portray <laughs> love stories same here <laughs> and so this is a much more real 
real love story for sure. Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting that one of the things that you're exploring now is your emotional unavailability. Hello. As you said, I think that's fascinating given how vulnerable you are in your writing, how you have now twice come on to this podcast and talked, you know, just ripped yourself open and shared with the world. Um, I find a tremendous amount of solace and comfort in being vulnerable. As long as the vulnerability is, is well-received, you know, occasionally you do that and you, and you, and the response hurts, right. When you open yourself yeah. up, but, but in my experience, that is very occasional, very rare. And, and for the vast majority of the time, vulnerability is rewarded. Do you, are you proud of the transition that you are have made and are making in yourself? Like, do you realize that you can go places that 99.9% of people can't, can't go and can't, and can't process? You years ago, um, you, you, uh, gave the echoes group a prompt that said, what are you proud of? And I, and I wrote the word proud down and I was like, I can't, I don't mm. understand how to, I don't, proud who's proud that's a i don't relate to that phenomena mm -hmm, <laughs> of mm -hmm. being proud but if i if i give myself a little bit of a break which is hard to do um like i say i i i i i feel i feel lucky um and i feel like i've I've been able to have some experiences that are are so unusual and so and so deep that they kind of knock you around in a way that helps draw you out of these things, you know what I mean? I still have a hard time saying I'm proud of I'm proud of this or I'm proud of that, but I wouldn't change things and I'm I'm happy to what I really want to do is is ask questions and understand. I think, I think, I feel like that's, that's my main motivation now is to, is to look as deeply as possible at, at the questions that come up and not put anything aside. And even if, even if things are coming up that, that feel unpleasant or uncomfortable and are hard to write about or talk about. Um, so I feel like that's, that's kind of where, where I land on that. You know what I mean? Does that, yeah. does that make sense? Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think wrestling with that word pride or being proud of yourself. I mean, I think that's, that's part of the work. I mean, there's a, and this actually leads to the next question I want to ask. There is that, that kind of comfort zone where you feel good enough about yourself and your actions and who you are and who you are becoming that that's a healthy place. And it's better than beating yourself up, beating yourself up all the time. And it's also better than narcissism. And you got to mm -hmm. find that, that kind of mm -hmm. groove mm -hmm. in the middle to be truly mm -hmm. healthy. One of the things you and I share the same writing coach and someone that you and I both uh, are very fond of. One of the things that she taught me that I'll never forget was she said, Matt, just tell your story. Don't tell people what to do. Don't give advice. Tell them your story. They'll either relate or they won't. But the beauty of that is if you start giving advice, people can argue with you and say your advice is wrong. If you tell your story, there's nothing to argue with. 
they they weren't there. They don't know the facts of what you're explaining. So they they don't know what your emotions were in that moment. They either relate or they don't. If they don't, you know, who cares? And if they do, then you're you're providing a service to people in a similar situation. And I just love that. So I feel unfair asking you this because you have done such a beautiful job of explaining your story and giving us something to relate to. But I do want to ask you about any advice that you might have. There are a lot of people that we, that Sherry and I get a chance to, to get to know who really wrestle with what the line is between support and enabling because you've had all of these experiences, right? Where you were the caregiver and you were setting up the appointments and you were doing everything you could. And then eventually you detached. Is that something that you've wrestled with? And what advice might you have for someone that's stuck between, am I enabling or am I supporting this person? I think that's, that's such a tough call. And I, and like I say, I think part of this, I think we had a conversation around pro-dependence a while back that, that again made that analogy between, you know, if, if, if your uh, cancer patient is, is having a hard time and their disposition is suffering and, you know, they're, they're becoming unpleasant to live with or abusive or it's difficult to, I mean, that's, I'm, 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 the thing that I wrestle with is the analogy. Why, why isn't your alcoholic worth all of that? You know what I mean? And I, I get there, there, the, the idea is that there's some element of free will that I think we're all kind of wrestling with how big of an element free will plays in, in alcoholism. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I, I appreciate when people are struggling with that. I, 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 I think, and it, this is where the advice piece gets hard is, these these situations all look alike on the surface, you know what I mean? Because we all have similar tales. We all have similar stories about, you know, when we realize we're being lied to. But there's also an individual component that can't can't be reached until until that's that message is ready to be heard. You know what I mean? And I, I was that way. Uh, you know, I I guess if I were going to give advice, I would the advice that I would give would be to allow yourself to prepare for an eventuality that you you don't think you want. Uh, you know, I, I had contacted a lawyer and the, the thing that I told the lawyer uh, 10 months to a year before we got divorced is I am not going to divorce my husband. But mm. having said that, I feel like I will ought to know some things. Mm. So I, I, I think if, if I had, if, if you were twisting my arm and making me give advice, it would be, what is it? Um, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. You know, you know that's, I mean? that's so interesting. I, I've never been through what you've been through, but in other kind of big stressful decisions in my life, I have always felt so much comfort when I go through all the scenarios and say, here's how I'll react in each one of these. And all mm-hmm. of these scenarios have now become acceptable. There's some that are desirable and there's some that are very much not desirable, but they're all at least acceptable and I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And it's like this wave of relief washes over you. And so I think that's, I mean, we, you know, when we, we've talked about grief and grieving Mm -hmm. in this discussion, I think a lot of people don't understand that grief is not just for the deceased. You can grieve the living, you can grieve the situation that you're in. You can compare it to that, that Disney movie that you watched as a child and realize that Prince Charming, that ain't going to work out the way you had hoped Mm -hmm. and spend some time 
grieving that situation to your own considerable relief. And I love the fact that you're looking at your role, not from a standpoint of, at least I hope not from a standpoint of let me find something else I can beat myself up about, but just from a standpoint of how can I grow from this and um, considering your own emotional unavailability and, you know, your bohemian uh, <laughs> participation, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've got to do that work. Otherwise there's just this thing that's going to haunt you forever. This unidentified Absolutely. thing is going to haunt you forever. Right. 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 And, and I mean, what, 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 what higher goal than understanding something that's complicated. Right. Yeah. Well, I talked about the advice that our writing coach gave us. You gave me advice a couple of years ago um, about the value of being a lifelong learner. And it's really, it's changed my perspective often um, in, in, you know, doing what we do. And in this world, you're always thinking, can I make this work from the standpoint of finances, right? Can I, Mm -hmm. is this really a viable thing? And my perspective completely shifted when you said, what if you're just learning because it's cool to learn? Like, what if, what if you keep digging and asking questions because you don't have the answers and you want them and that's it. Like that's the end and, and see what happens. And so no further justification needed. Yeah. So I love the fact that you are taking your own advice and you're, you're digging into, um, you know, what, what does this all mean for you on a much deeper sense than I tried and this person passed away um there's much more there for you and the fact that you're looking into it and willing to talk about it is really really amazing barbara tell us a little bit more about your writing you're working on a memoir you got like a title or a release date uh you know am i going to get an advanced copy like what's going on you you will get the advanced copy the first copy is going to go to matt uh, because because this is all your fault (laughs) um I'm I'm in the throes of writing, so I don't I don't have anything uh, as as concrete as a release date. Um, I'm I'm working on a, a memoir right now that is the the subject is the relationship with Todd, um, and my goal for it is um, a kind of it's kind of like a, a reverse chronology. So so right now it's starting with his death and and the grief around that, and then it's going into the sort of in between phase of of breakup and divorce and then it's going to then it's going to move into the the love the love part of the story uh and and my my vision for it right now is that it will conclude with forgiveness because the forgiveness isn't just isn't just for Todd it's for me too yeah it's it's fascinating it strikes me that this is a story not yet written from the standpoint of you're still writing it but even more importantly you're still figuring it out. It's mm. not done yet. It's not done yet because that last, that last section, um, you're still working through, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I have, I have a ferocious case of writer's block right now, which is really sad because it's NaNoWriMo, the national novel writing month. I got to get 50,000 words out if I want to get that t-shirt <laughs> and I'm really, and I'm really struggling. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm in a writer's block phase because I'm in a, in a kind of, Oof, this is uncomfortable. I, in, in an odd way, I, I did I did the NaNoWriMo last year and 50,000 words was no problem because I was in grief and I couldn't shut up about grief. I, there was just so much. It was just, you know, a pot boiling over every every minute of every day. 
And this, I, this I got to dig for. I think it is fascinating that someone who has been through what you have been through are, is still motivated by a t-shirt. Not only that you're motivated <laughs> by a t-shirt, but you're motivated by a t-shirt that you've already got a version of from last year. I'm motivated That's... by a t-shirt that I already got last year and I'm going to have to buy it myself. <laughs> oh, I don't even get given it. <laughs> by a t-shirt that you pay for. Well, that is, that is what it's like to be an artist. Um, I'm telling no, you, we suffer, no we suffer for our art. We suffer for yeah. our art. <laughs> well, I I have a strong feeling that um, when you are done, uh, I know the story never comes to completion. It's a continual growth process. But when volume one is produced <laughs> and ready to go, um, not only will I look forward to reading the advanced copy, but I will help you promote this in any way humanly possible. Um, I fancy myself a bit, a bit of a writer. But uh, you, absolutely, to, no, no, I was not fishing for a compliment. You're not allowed to give me one. Not to the degree that you are. You knock my socks off. Any everything I've ever read of yours, and um, I'm probably the most excited person that you are. Um, you know, when when people start about talk about starting a project like this, you mentioned all the journals, right? The 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 started and not completed journals. Yep. You get a little bit of where you're like, oh, I know she's a busy professional and she's got all these things going on in her life. I wonder if she'll ever get across the finish line. But I feel like now you are on record. You are accountable. You have a you have a uh, listening audience that is expecting something to be delivered. Eventually, we won't put any timeline on you. That's no, no fair pressure. To no, no pressure. <laughs> no timeline pressure, but eventual delivery. Absolutely. No, Barbara, I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on and talk. I know how hard these topics are. Um, I, I This is an unfair question, just like the one I asked you about giving advice, um, but to ask it right in the moment, is there anything cathartic about coming on and talking this through? Do you, you feel better than you did an hour and a half ago? You know, I used to, and I, I you, you and Sherry and I used to joke about this. I used to really hate crying. Like I just had no patience for it. I didn't want to do it. And now I'm, I'm like, I'm still, I'm still kind of wiping. I've got, I've got a meeting I'm going to go to in a minute and I brought, I brought my lipstick and I, and I feel like I'm going to have a really good meeting, you know, I'll just wipe my nose off a little bit. And I think, I, I think any kind of processing you can do helps you to understand. And anytime you can share, um, you're, you're, you're letting people see that process and it's, it's, there's no wrong way to do it. You know, as long as you're, as long as you're doing it and as long as you're, you know, communicating and not shutting down. Yeah. Getting the toxins from the inside to the outside, someplace where uh, you're sharing the burden with others who, you know, if somebody's listening to this podcast or if you're in a mutual support group, anything like that, you're with people who are there to carry the burden. They want to be a part of that process. And I feel tremendously blessed that you've, you've shared what you've shared with us today. Thanks for coming back on, Barbara. Thanks for having me, Matt. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.